as Wendell said this morning, we're all a little fattier, a little fatter and happier. And uh, another Christmas has come and gone, and uh, another season has come and gone that the world celebrates. And you know, as we pause to think about this from a biblical perspective, I wanted that video played because of its message. And we see so many spirits of Christmas. Uh, the most predominant in America is one of commercialism, entertainment, focused on family and friends, and food, and, uh, and, and a genuine spirit of helping others. That's a good thing. But as we know, most of the world misses the true meaning of Christmas. But in the church, and certainly in our church, we know the real meaning of Christmas. We know that it's focused on the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has come into the world. And that's why we call the season Advent, the four Sundays, officially on the church calendar, the four Sundays that precede um, Christmas are referred to as Advent. And that's a Latin word that just simply means to come. And specifically, the meaning is, is the coming of something very special. And so, when we celebrate Christmas, we focus on His coming. We look back to the Christ who came, who lived, who died, and returned again to heaven. So it's the Christ who came and is gone again. Just like Christmas. But is that really Christmas? I said that that way purposefully because I, I think I'm guilty of oftentimes seeing Christmas as just that. We celebrate Christ who's come, who's gone, and it's over. Like taking down the decorations, like, you know, hauling out all the trash from the presents. It's come, it's gone, it's time to move on. But I think the most Christian view of Christmas is that to think of it as the God who came is still coming. The God who spoke is still speaking. And for us to focus on that, which I trust we will see as a biblical concept, I want us to back up. And think of the whole perspective of God disclosing Himself, of God's revelation of Himself to us. God obviously is the most ultimate being. God's the greatest being. That goes without saying. He's so great, He's so beyond us, that we can know nothing of God except He disclose it to us. You know, the, uh, the point that a being like God, who is God, could reveal himself to someone like us, just creatures, just dust with his life breathed into us, is really beyond our perception. So God has to disclose himself through his radiance, through his glory. We can't handle God, and we really can't handle his glory. But the glory of God is the closest thing we can handle to who he really is. It's his weight. It's his attributes, his character, who he really is. That's his glory. The glory of God, uh, glory is to God as wet is to water, as heat is to fire, as the brightness that we see outside is to the sun. It's the eminence. It's the effulgence. It's the radiance of who he really is. So, I see the whole of history as the revelation of God in His glory. God's been revealing Himself through His glory. And before time even began, we know that God existed in His triune harmony in glory. But there was none there to behold it except the Trinity. And so He first began to reveal His glory in uh, the creation of the spiritual world which is beyond our imagination. The realm of angels, the realm of heavenly beings that we can't even comprehend. 
But his glory was revealed. Then he spoke and revealed himself in creation. The heaven and the earth. As Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he did so by speaking. He's revealing himself through his spokenness, through his speech, through the breath or the mouth of God. And they declared his glory. The heavens and the earth still declare his glory, but how much more so in their perfection was the majesty of God seen in creation. And then he breathed into dust and created men, Adam and Eve, in his image, his image bearers. And it's kind of like the pinnacle of his creation, the crowning achievement of his making something out of nothing was Adam and Eve. And those revelations were glorious. But then he moved to self-disclosure because he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He revealed himself personally. He moved from general revelation into personal revelation. He became intimate with Adam and Eve, disclosing himself in very intimate ways in their uh, times in the garden. But we know what happened. They fell. Sin entered the world. But thankfully, God didn't stop revealing Himself. He kept speaking. He kept coming to us, revealing Himself. Uh, and immediately after the fall, even in the curse upon the serpent in Genesis 3, God promised what? That He would come. God promised the victory. God promised that what was lost would be restored. And, but He didn't stop there. He kept speaking. Throughout the righteous line that came after Adam and Eve, from Abel to Seth to Noah to Moses, He kept speaking. God kept speaking, kept revealing Himself in His glory to the line that would bring about Himself. He spoke to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to the twelve sons of Israel, to Moses, to Joshua, to Judges, to the kings of Israel, and then to the major and minor prophets of Judah and Israel. And as he moved through every generation and every season, the message stayed the same. God kept delivering the same message, but each time the glory was revealed a little more. Each time, the glory shone a little brighter. But that wasn't enough, was it? Because God would break through and reveal Himself in special ways. Although His uh, Scriptures are certainly special revelation, He had even more special revelation at times where He would just burst on the scene in a miraculous way. Like um, in Exodus... We read about how God revealed Himself in glory to His people. As they're moving through the wilderness, He appeared in what was described as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In uh, Exodus 33, after Moses received the law on Sinai, which and Sinai was covered with God's glory too. It's, it was described in Exodus 24 as a consuming fire on top of the Mount of Sinai. After Moses received the law there, Moses wanted more glory. And he said, I pray thee, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, you can't handle it. No man can look upon my face and live. But I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll place my hand over you and protect you as I pass by. And then you'll be allowed to look on my afterglow just where I've been, just the afterglow of God's glory was all that Moses, even as righteous as Moses was, the friend of God, that's all he could handle. God revealed himself in the Shekinah glory. You know, when they finished the tabernacle, it says that the glory of God came and filled the tabernacle and it remained on the tabernacle wherever the people moved. When they built the temple in 1 Kings, the Shekinah glory showed up again. 
And God filled the temple with His glory. So you see, I'm, I can go on and on, but all the way through the Old Testament revelation, God is revealing Himself in glory. And that's magnificent. It's something I can't imagine. It's beyond my thinking, that's for sure. And in fact, there, it's really amazing the way some of these are described. But Ezekiel, in his prophecy, in the first chapter, he described a vision that God granted him of, of God's glory that's beyond description. He spends a whole chapter talking about how that there were these four great heavenly beings and that they had six wings and they flew and they had faces and with them were four wheels that were dazzling and brilliant and they spun with each heavenly being and above them was a great expanse and above that was a great firmament with a throne that looked like sapphires and on the throne was an individual that or a being that had the appearance of a man that had great radiance and glory coming from him and above that was a radiance of like a rainbow like a brilliant rainbow and I'm not doing justice to the passage, but I'm just trying to summarize that it was beyond description. Because after he did all that, then Ezekiel explains what he's just seen when he says, at the end of chapter 1, he says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I don't know if that strikes you the way it strikes me, but do you see how he was so removed from what he was even getting at? He, he did the best he could do. He tried to describe the indescribable. It just couldn't be done. And so Ezekiel said, I'm just talking about a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I stretched that out enough for you. You see, this is not even God. This is not even God's glory. This is not even God's likeness. This is not even God's likeness of His glory or the appearance of the likeness of His glory. This is just a vision of that. And yet it was more than could be described. So, God's revelation is glorious. And often it's very glorious, even beyond description. But His most glorious revelation was yet to come. Because in the Old Testament... They had many revelations of God, but none of them were as big as that which was to come. The prophets in the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of the Lord in a very special way. Isaiah was one of those. He was one of the major prophets over 700 years before Christ came who talked about the greatest appearance of the greatest glory of God that was yet to come. And that would be the fulfillment of his prophecy. Um, so he prophesied about the advent, that special coming that I mentioned, the coming of the Lord himself, not just his glory, but God himself would come. But like all the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah was one who blurred the distinction between his first and second coming. Think about it this way. A very familiar Christmas passage that we all know, Isaiah 9, verse 6, where it says what? For unto us a child is born. That's his first coming in humanity. Unto us a son is given. That's his first coming in deity. And what's the next phrase? And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Did that happen in his first coming? Did he rule the whole earth? Did the government of all the nations rest upon Christ? No. So you see, in one sentence, Isaiah blurred the difference between his first coming and second coming. So Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the Lord. Not his first coming, not his second coming, but the coming the first and the second coming of the Lord is what he's talking about. In fact, Isaiah, if you'll turn to the book of Isaiah, um, 
can be seen as a miniature Bible. And this is interesting. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. How many books in the Bible? 66. How many in the Old Testament? 39. How many in the New Testament? 27. Isaiah can be divided between the first 39 chapters and the second 27 chapters. The first 39 are prophecies of condemnation and judgment. It's woe. It's wrath. It's vengeance. It's God's judgment upon a sinful people. Judah had sinned. The nations around Judah had sinned. The whole world was in sin. And Isaiah said, God's wrath is coming for that sin. But thankfully, God didn't end there. And Isaiah's prophecy didn't end there. And so immediately in chapter 40, which that's where we need to be, chapter 40 of Isaiah, he shifts. And so just like the Old Testament is primarily about a God of judgment, the New Testament is primarily about a God of comfort and hope. And the, the next 27 chapters of Isaiah are prophecies of comfort and hope. The Messiah is coming. God himself is coming both as a Savior and a Sovereign with both a cross to bear and a crown to wear. He's coming. So with that perspective, look at Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, we'll start there with verse 1. Um, and by the way, my favorite Christmas music this time, and, and y'all know this is part two of the message I did last year. You know, see if, um, for me, this hadn't been long enough a gap, uh, and I'm sure for you too, it hadn't been long enough a gap since I preached. And uh, But it's like I told Carlton, only the faithful come today, so even I won't run y'all off. But um, the uh, the message I preached about the same time last year, you know, was a similar focus, but more upon the Word of the Lord and what it meant to them when He came the first time. Today, I want to take that further all the way into the future and look at what it means for all eternity. And... And I really take it from, as I said, my favorite music, which is the Messiah. Because when Handel opens his Messiah, where does he choose to start? Isaiah chapter 40. The first three pieces of that oratorio come from these first five verses here. Listen and read as I uh, read along with me as I read this. Isaiah 40. Comfort. O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord, of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain. And the rugged terrain, a broad valley. And here's verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah said to Judah, comfort, real comfort is coming. Warfare, the warfare with the Lord is ended. So prepare the way. As we learned about in Bible study this morning with Carlton, God had a message that he delivered through Elijah, and then it was delivered again through one in the spirit and power of Elijah, who was John the Baptist, that prepare you the way. God is coming. Let every valley be taken down, every crooked path made straight, every, uh, every mountain be taken down, every valley lifted up. Prepare the way of the Lord. So I hope what's coming to be seen here is a progressive revelation. God's moving along in self-disclosure from eternity past all the way up to through thousands of years to Isaiah in about 700 B.C. He's revealing more and more of himself. In creation, it's his invisible attributes, his divine nature, his mighty power, his beauty. Then he speaks of himself 
through his word, and he reveals himself in special ways through uh, the Shekinah glory, the emanations, things like that. We can learn of God through creation. We can know something of God from creation, but we can't understand him, can we? We know he exists. We know he's powerful. We know he's beautiful. We can learn of God through conscience. As Romans says, God makes himself known and evident through what is within us so that no man is without excuse. And, but that's not enough. We can't understand. But thankfully, God reveals himself specially, intimately, through his word. But even that wasn't enough. So God revealed himself fully, completely in himself. So he came. And it was needed because the Old Testament people like Daniel. Daniel's one of the most godly men in all the Bible. One of the few men that nothing bad's ever said about. And in his book, in chapter 12, verse 8, he said, I heard, but I could not understand. There's a fullness that's still missing. There's something in spite of all this revelation, in spite of all this special revelation, in spite of the peculiar revelations in the Old Testament, there's something still missing. So, turn to the most Old Testament of the New Testament books, which is the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, and let's read from chapter 1 of Hebrews, which is the next screen. Hebrews chapter 1. Because God explains just what I've been trying to say, and that is God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. So God had been speaking. God whispered in creation. God spoke in his special revelation in the Old Testament and in his word. But now God thunders in his real person and who he really is when he comes. Uh, now mankind can understand more fully. Now we have even more revelation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but God didn't stop at that. The Word did what? It became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this Word came into the world in a powerful way that had never been seen before, as God put on flesh. And yet, as Paul says in Colossians, in him, the fullness of deity dwells. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells. That's amazing. Is that in that babe was the fullness of deity. In Christ was God. Not someone who used to be God and stepped down from being God and would one day become God, but God himself was in that flesh. And he is the image of the invisible God. But that's wonderful. That's celebratory. That's what Christmas is all about, right? But what I'm asking you today is, is there something still missing? And don't take me wrong. I'm not trying to say that Christ is deficient in any way. I'm not trying to say that Jesus lacked anything in his first coming. But what I'm asking is, is that what Isaiah looked forward to? Is that what the Old Testament prophets prophesied about? Is that it? And I submit no. And I say that it's been, I, I've been coming to grips over the past couple of years with the fact that I have had a gross misunderstanding about Christmas, really, of the whole concept of the way New Testament saints should view Christ's coming, 
versus the Old Testament saints, the way they view it. Uh, let, me, let me explain it this way. We marvel at the faith of people like Abraham, of Moses, or Daniel. We say, man, if I could just could have faith like those guys had. And then we think, well, but they had all that magic stuff. You know, like a theophany, like Christ appeared personally to Abraham. So if I had that happen to me, I'd probably have the faith of Abraham. Moses saw the glory of God, his backside. He was on the mountain with him. You think, well, if that happened to me, I'd be more faithful. You see, but yet in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen to what Paul says about that. He's talking about the difference between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Christ's Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, Old Testament, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it, the glory that excels it. For that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. That's amazing. What Paul is saying is that compared to the glory that has been revealed and that is being revealed in Christ, the glory of the Old Testament is not even glorious. And you know, it's kind of like when Jesus said, compared to the way you love me, you need to hate your mother and father. He didn't mean hate your mother and father. He meant compared to the way you love me, it will be like you hate them. Well, what Paul is saying, compared to the glory that's revealed in Christ and in His coming, the glory that's revealed in the Old Testament is not even glory. So what were they looking forward to? What, what was their great faith in? They had faith in the Lord that was coming. And you say, well, yeah, I understand that because that's the way I've always understood it. The Old Testament saints were saved under the same covenant that we're saved under, and they were saved by faith looking forward to Christ's coming. We, or New Testament saints, were saved the same way that they were by grace through faith in Christ, and, but we're saved looking back. To his coming. Well, what I see from the complete revelation is that that's half the faith they had. If we only have the faith that looks back to Christ's first coming, we only have half the faith that Moses, that Abraham, that Adam have. Because what was their faith in? Like, go back to the passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah, it says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Does it stop there? Does it say the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in the babe in the manger? No, it says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and what? All flesh shall see him together. Has that happened yet? So Isaiah was prophesying about his coming. Not just his first coming, but his second coming also. The prophet Habakkuk wrote, Habakkuk 2, 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Has that happened yet? That's still coming. As Stephen Curtis Chapman just sang, the God who came is still coming. The God who speaks, who spoke, is still speaking. He And he will speak in a way that is yet to come that we cannot imagine. And so, you're saying, well, this is real interesting. Aaron, you made a real interesting uh, intellectual point here. But what in the world does this have to do with me, with my daily life? How does this change me? What does this matter to my life tomorrow? When I go back to work next year, in the coming year, I'm dealing with real problems, and you're talking about these lofty thoughts of something that we can't even 
get our minds around. Well, I submit that in my life, I have come to see that this is one of the most practical applications that we can ever try to grasp. Because when we see that our faith is a forward-looking faith, not a reverse-looking faith, we don't just look back to His first coming. We still look forward to His coming. And we enjoy the Christ who is coming, even now. He's still coming into this world. He's still coming into our lives. He's still speaking into our lives. That is truly transforming. In fact, I've got several application points I want us to go through here. The first one, which is next screen, is the glory of the Lord is being revealed and His glory is transforming us. If we go back to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3 that I mentioned earlier and think about Paul is explaining again the difference between the spirit of Moses and the spirit of Christ. And we look at how he ends that chapter. Verse 18, he says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So what's a practical application of the glory, of having hope, of having faith, of having trust in the glory to be revealed? We're beholding as in a mirror dimly. It's a poor it's a poor mirror. It's like a mirror that they would have had 2,000 years ago. It would have been real smoky, translucent, obscuring. It would not be perfect like the mirrors we can make today. So it would be dim and it would be disfiguring. It would not be perfect in the revelation of the true attributes of what's in the mirror. But, we're beholding that glory through a, an unveiled face, unlike Moses. And in doing so, we're being transformed by that glory. This is an amazing principle of sanctification. We're being transformed by the glory being revealed from one level of glory to another. Now, that's exciting to me, is that God is transforming me as I behold more and more of who He is God is transforming me from one level of glory to another. That's exciting. That's practical. That is sanctifying. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul said, For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The second coming. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. The second coming. That's why it's so important that we have faith in the Christ who is coming. You know, it's like Martha professed this. You know, when Jesus was about to raise Lazarus in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha, weak though her profession was, it was true when she said, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's coming, the Son of God, even he who comes, or the tense of the verb, is coming into the world. The verb there is present tense. So she used an Old Testament expression referring to the Messiah as the one who is coming. They always saw the Messiah as one who is coming. Even when he came, they still saw the Messiah as one who's coming. So we need that faith, that we look to Christ, not as one who came. And I'm just professing in front of y'all that only in recent years have I begun to get this con concept of faith in Christ as the Christ who is coming. It's like, you know, God is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. Christ is the Messiah who came, who is coming, and who is to come. That's, that's who we need to faith. You know, um, Dave just preached to us on the book of uh, Ruth. And think of it this way. 
In the book of Ruth, we first had to have the story of the kinsman redeemer. Boaz had to redeem Ruth, his bride-to-be, from her destitute situation. In other words, he had to buy her back. He had to do that first before he could take her as his wife. So what's the analogy? I'm saying God had to come and buy us back. He had to come and buy us back on the cross, through a sinless life, through His first coming. Now He can come again as the husband and truly know us as a husband truly knows his bride. This is a beautiful picture of the intimacy of Christ with us, his people, that in his second coming, there will be much more full knowledge, much more full revelation. That's the faith that the Old Testament saints had. That's that great faith that we see and we marvel at. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, when they were first received the promise, did, it, did, did the promise say, but there's one coming when he was cursing the serpent in chapter 3? Did, did God say that, that there's one coming who will be born a baby in a manger and will live a sinless life and will die for the sins and so you'll be forgiven? Stop. No. He didn't stop there. He kept going to the point where he said he will crush the head of the serpent. So the promise was not just the beginning of his coming, but the end of his coming, the second coming, when he will come to crush the head of the serpent. Abraham, think about it this way. We think of the faith of Abraham. He's the father of the faithful. Well, in Hebrews, did it say that Abraham looked forward to the manger? No. What does it say in Hebrews? Abraham looked to what? The city whose builder and architect is the Lord or is God. So what's, what's that talking about? That's not the first coming. That's the second coming. So all this, I know I'm being redundant, but it's just overwhelming to me when we get the big picture that God is calling us to faith in the Lord who comes, the Lord who is still coming. And that will transform us. That will make us into new creatures. That will sanctify us. But point two, the glory of the Lord is to be revealed, and His hope is purifying us. Like transformation, this coming glory of the Lord doesn't just take us from one level of glory to another in sanctification, but it purifies us. First John chapter 3 says, We are children of God, and it's not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. So it's amazing that the hope of the Lord who is coming, the hope we have in the second coming, is a purifying thing to us. It's very practical that we're driven to holiness. We're driven to purification. We're driven to repentance of our sins when we focus on the fact that Christ has not just come. Christ is still coming. Um, the ultimate and full revelation of Christ will mandate our ultimate and full transformation. We can't handle what's coming. Just like God told Moses, you can't handle it. I'm going to have to hide you in the rock because if you saw it, it would kill you. It vaporize you. It's like, um, and this may be a silly illustration, but it's like the mythical vampires who they can't handle direct sunlight. They're instantly burned up. We can't handle the full blaze of the glory of God without being totally transformed, totally sanctified, totally made pure. And we call that what? Glorification. We have justification. When we come to Christ, sanctification as we walk with Christ, glorification when we're fully sanctified. Uh, it's like Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. He said what? You can't handle the truth. We can't handle it. We can't handle the glory. That's what God's saying. You can't handle the glory. But when I come, when you see me face to face, you'll be just like me. 
then you can handle it. Then you'll be fully transformed and have a very real hope. So that's a practical thing. Thirdly, the glory of the Lord is being revealed, and His love will preserve and reward us. You know, Paul, in his last letter, in Second Timothy chapter 4, at the end of his last letter, is preparing for his death. He knows he's about to die. And he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knew that he was going to be killed. That was obvious. But Paul looked forward in hope. And the love of that appearing preserved him. That's the perseverance of the saints. It's a preserving love, and it's a rewarding love. We're rewarded in that day with the crown of righteousness, which Paul looked forward to. And I've got to confess further. It's kind of like for many years, you hear preachers preach about you've got to have a burden for lost people. And I would sit there thinking, I really don't have the burden for lost people I need to have. You can't really have a true burden for lost people until you have a true love for Christ. You can try to work it up, but then it's not going to happen. Well, likewise, when I'd hear about this passage and think about, I don't have a chance of getting the crown of righteousness because I don't always love His appearing. Sometimes when I think about His second coming, I get scared. I really, like if He were to split the skies and come today, are we really excited about that? Are we really anticipating that? Is that the hope, the greatest hope in our hearts and minds right now? I confess, often with me it's not. But I also confess that the struggles and trials that God has blessed me with in recent years has enabled me to have a faith that looks forward more than it ever has before. I have looked back too much, but struggles and trials force you to look ahead. They force you to look to what is really meaningful, what is eternal, what goes beyond this life. And so I thank God that He is beginning to give me a true love for His appearing, a true love of His second coming, a true hope in that. And I pray that for all of us today, that rather than looking back to what Christmas was, that we look forward to what Christmas will be, to what the miracle of Christ will be. And you say, well, what if I don't live to the second coming? Well, then we just get there sooner. You know, those who die in Christ, they just get to see Him quicker. And so there's real hope. There's real faith. There is real love in the second coming. And, you know, the faith of the Old Testament saints, when we think about offering our firstborn as Abraham did, that kind of faith, that's second coming faith. You know, if we only have faith in the Christ who came, that can take us through an easy life. That's why the gospel, the cheap gospel that's sold in America today, is so easily bought. Because most Americans have a real easy life. I have a real easy life. I've been through a little bit of problems, but even those are nothing compared to what some people endure. And some people live a complete life of struggles and problems. So the faith of just the Christ of the first coming will take you through an easy life. But it takes the faith of the Christ revealed in the second coming to take you through a difficult life. Only looking forward 
to the glory to be revealed can take us through the real difficulties, the real issues of life, through the loss of health, through the loss of wealth, through the loss of relationships, through the loss of loved ones, through the loss of our own life. We all will die. And when we face death, the greatest hope is not that we prayed a prayer and we believed in a Jesus to get hell insurance, but that we walked a life of faith in the Christ to come. And we know in whom we have believed, and we know that he is faithful to keep that against that day for us. That is a victorious faith. And then, sadly, those first three points were for believers, but I have to make a fourth point here. The glory of the Lord is to be revealed, and His wrath should cause us to fear, to repent and believe in Christ. Sadly, the Old Testament prophecies that blended His first and second comings together can be frightful if we don't know Christ, if we don't have a walk with Him. The fear of His second coming is very real, and it should be, because we don't need to see, if we're lost, you don't need to see Christ as the babe in the manger, as the sweet Jesus who is forgiving and loving, as the one who came to forgive you of your sins and offer no condemnation. That is the Christ who came. But, for example, when Christ went back to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, he went into the synagogue to teach, and he took up the scroll of Isaiah, the, the, the prophet that we read from earlier. And he opened the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. And he started reading in Isaiah 61, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. He shut up right there. He, 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 and then he rolled the scroll up, handed it back to the attendant, and said to the audience, Today, in your hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled. But if you go to Isaiah 61 and read the passage he was quoting from, after he says all those nice things about proclaiming release to those who are captive, proclaiming sight to those who are blind, proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord in verse 2, that is in the middle of a sentence. And if Christ had kept speaking, it would have said to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. So you see the point is Isaiah, there again, didn't separate the first and second coming. In the same sentence, Isaiah was referring to the first coming, second coming, he said, the favorable year of the Lord is coming, that's first coming, and the day of vengeance of our God is coming, that's second coming. So, like Paul said in Thessalonians, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So this should be a message of warning if you don't know Christ, if you aren't trusting in the Christ who came and who is coming again. This should be a very scary message because Christ came the first time as a lamb, but He's coming again as a lion. He came first in peace, but He's coming again in war. He came first offering forgiveness, but He's coming again and He's going to deliver judgment, condemnation. And that is what Isaiah is talking about. When all flesh shall see Him together, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some of us will do it in intimate fellowship and in submission and glory, and some will do it in doom and condemnation. So, to summarize, the Scriptures clearly present a doctrine of God's progressive revelation of His glory. 
God is revealing who He is in increasing glory. And in doing so, He is transforming us from one level of glory to another. And yet, the greatest glory is to be revealed. Compared to what's come before, the glory that God is to be revealed, the glory that God is to reveal yet, the glory that God is yet to reveal makes all the glory that has come before as if it's not even glory. That is why Christ referred to it as great glory. In the Gospels, Christ talked about His second coming, and He said that you'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great glory. Well, now, if you think about the glory of the Lord and how awesome that is, and we can't even get our mind around it, Ezekiel couldn't even describe it, and there's no way to comprehend it. That's a pretty great and awesome thought. But yet, Christ said there's coming a great glory. Not just glory, but great glory. You know, it's like not just war, but awesome war. It is a glory that is beyond our imagination. And in fact, I guess the best way to close is the way that Christ closed his own revelation. And uh, in the book of Revelation, which is the last revelation that he had, at the end, he said what? He said, surely I come quickly. Surely I come quickly. And you know, I confess that oftentimes I hear those things and I have a detached perspective from it. But I want to have an Old Testament faith. I want to have a faith of Abraham, of Adam, of Moses that looks forward, as Isaiah did, to the glory that's to be revealed. I want to have a faith that will not be ashamed at His coming. I want to truly love His appearing and in that faith to be transformed to be renewed, to be purified, to be given real hope for real life, to be preserved, and to be brought to full glory. In fact, the best response I think we can have is what's listed there in Revelation. After Christ says, surely I come quickly, then the response of his bride is what? Amen. Even so, Lord, come. Amen. Even so, Lord, come. Let's pray.